Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Morning. Good morning. <laughs> How are you? I am pretty good. There's a little bit of chaotic energy in my house this morning, but for now, bones are in mouths and dogs are happy. <laughs> so, um, I just had a conversation with somebody just before we got on recording this about how we find things that energize us and give us hope and that sort of thing. And um, I found something that I, I want to read to you something um, that I found or found. It feels like more like it found me. It's, it's one of those kind of stories that um, it's just, just so appropriate for the time in which we live. Mm. So I'm going to read it to you and then we can talk about it. Okay. Okay. One of the responsibilities of Nate Sears, a landscaping, a landscaper working at a housing complex on Cape Cod, is to check the piers at the adjacent beach for storm damage. One morning he was doing just that when he spotted a 10-foot pilot whale coming toward shore. He watched for a moment. He then saw a second whale, then a third, each one heading for land. Stunned at first, Nate watched the Whale, the approach of the whales with awe. Then his concern took over. Since it's not unusual for whales to beach themselves on Cape Cod, Nate knew that this was the problem, probable intent of these large, gentle mammals. He summoned a neighbor who ran to call the National Seashore Service, knowing that the whales were coming so fast that they would be on the beach before help could arrive. Nate quickly threw off his shoes and socks, throwed up his pants legs and waded out in the direction of the first whale. He caught up with it in waist-deep water on a sandbar. The whale was thrashing about, and he could see cuts on its body from the batter with the sand. Moved solely by instinct, Nate placed his hands on the whale and held them there. The thrashing stopped. The whale became completely still. Nate said in that moment he became aware that this was the whale's first encounter with the human species. It seemed that both human and whale were operating on instinct, each trusting the other in an encounter that neither had experienced before. After the whale had grown calm, Nate gently turned it around and pointed it away from the shore. The whale began, began to swim back out to sea. Losing no time, Nate approached the second whale. Again, he simply placed his hands on the creature and its thrashing stopped. Once this second oil had cruised still, Nate turned it away from the shore and it too swam out to sea. By this time, members of the National Seashore Service arrived and they helped Nate turn the third and the fourth whale back. Mm. I love this story. Beautiful. Because we have these whales mm -hmm. that are rushing towards shore. Climate change gun violence, um, 
racial divide, political mistrust, all the stuff that's going on. And somehow we have to develop the capacity to wade out into the deep and put our hands on these wells and calm them down and turn them around, turn them back to sea. So I love that story about the whales and the idea that the beached whales are symbolic of kind of the social and political things that we, and spiritual matters that we have coming towards us. I don't even want to say that we have coming towards us that are already here. Right. They're here. Um, yeah. And and then let's, I'd love to talk more about this story, but I love that you also have the image of the whale for some reason. And this is a nice bit of synchronicity this week, as we're talking about wrapping our minds around the feminine, wrapping our minds around what are these big issues of our time that the gospel of John, that Jesus's teachings can help us reframe our realities around. Whales have come up twice for me this week. <laughs> and, really? and this is the third time. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And somehow the whale in your story is a bit of a harbinger, sim- symbolic of the things we need to lay our hands on, deal with, and and push back into the environment where they belong, right? And and in your story, the whales represent, I want to, I'm using a simple word, trouble. Um, oh Lord, mm-hmm. the troubles I've known, right? The troubles we know. The whale also, in some of the ways that I've sort of both been inspired by them this week and um, am contemplating the whale is also that soft and strong image of the sacred. Mm-hmm. Why did this story touch you? The story touched me because it's the lead off in a book that I just finished reading by Judy Canato called Field of Compassion. And um, as I mentioned to you before we started recording this podcast, one of the things that I want to do in our trying to teach about the Gospel of John is to communicate a couple of things. First of all, the, the, to stay aware of the social, political, religious context in which this gospel was produced, which was a time of great difficulty. It was a time of great division. It was a time when people were hurt um, and feeling misunderstood. And um, both of the major resources that we're using, um, Shelby Spong and John Sanford, Talk about how the, the the intent of the writer or writers of the Gospel of John was to communicate how the message of Jesus had given a sense of expanded life and living to people in this very difficult time. We are living in a time of similar distrust, unrest, division, divisiveness, all of that sort of thing. And I think that I would like, I would hope that we can um, do the work that is required to do to become the kind of people who can lay our head for a whale in our society and time and achieve some sense of calmness and effectiveness. Yeah. That's it in a nutshell. 
you know, and, and so the whale story, which may be a true story, Nate may very likely be a, tr- a real person is also a parable, right? And, and this is what Sanford said mm-hmm. is so successful about Jesus's teachings is that these, and you've said this many times over the years, but parables may be historically true in some cases, but they're also universally and timelessly true. Mm-hmm. What I have heard from you over the years, and even in my own journey, it's kind of always wrestling with what does something or someone that's whose teachings are 2000 years old have to say about the world today. And it's a bit of a like zoom out because if we can zoom out and we can find the symbolic, if we can find the depth within these stories, then they still apply for today. If we're looking for them to be literally true and historically true, we may not find the relevance. Um, and I wonder too, here we are saying in our time, we have so much division, so much hurt and so much pain, which seems to have also been true in the time of Jesus. When is there not that time in human history? When do we not need images like whales, teachers like Jesus, you know? Has there ever been a time when we haven't needed this? (laughs) No, there has never been a time. And um, I I do think that what is different about the time in which you and I live right now is that for the first time since the foundation, no, not for the the second time since the foundation of the United States as as a nation, a growing nation, a colony that became a nation that became the United States. For the second time, we we are on the precipice of um, losing our liberal democracy. And uh, John Meacham, a historian whom I respect very much, mm-hmm. says we are we are closely approaching uh, a, a point from which there is no return. And I grew up. And I'm sure you did too, but I, I grew up with the belief that the United States would be like gone forever, you know, like right. the, the right the British Empire. It would, yeah. And as we've seen the British Empire crumble, and we, I think that um, there's a good possibility that we could see the United States crumble. Now, I also want to say that. It is out of the the doubt and difficulty that a person or a group of people experience that a new faith comes. Yes. And that's Absolutely. what you see in the Gospel of John. And, and this is where I think like the, the, I, I think I harp on this a lot, that pain and grief are part of transformation, um, being in the in the. Uh, I love how Catherine Keller phrases it in the Tihomic realities, the, the depth realities, the deep, dark abyss that is also endlessly creative. We can't transform without grief. We can't transform without um, probably some pretty dramatic letting go. And the seductiveness that you say, um, you said, as I grew up and as you grew up, I'm still growing up, but um <laughs> But the, the city on the hill, 
um, manifest destiny ideology of American colonization is so seductive. I think in some ways, implicitly or explicitly, we were commonly raised with this idea that we were meant to be, that America is, is meant to be. And yet historically, no thing lasts forever. No empire lasts forever. Um, and this is a process of becoming unempired in the same way that I love how Reverend Jackie Lewis talks, talked about Jesus. We need to decolonize Jesus. We need to unempire Jesus. It's the same process we have to do as a society and as a country. Um, decenter ourselves in some way. Mm -hmm. And I think that that decentering is just so terrifying. We are the center of our story. And this is a little bit of a tangent, but I was listening to Padre Gotuama. He does um, a podcast through On Being that is called Poetry Unbound. I've mentioned it before, and I highly recommend it. He was having a conversation with a Native American poet who, um, who said that he tries to write poetry by decentering himself in the poem. So how can I talk about this land, this place, this experience with, without myself in it? And I think that just that concept is just so hard for us. How do I remove the I? Um, we have spent so much time as a society focusing on the I, on the individual. Right. Now it's time to move away from it. <laughs> yeah, that... that or at least incorporate it into our growth as a community, as a whole. You know, I, I know that I am about to say something that's very idealistic, mm -hmm. but I, I have lived with the hope that the kind of religious, spiritual, psychological teachings that I have benefited from and want to pass on can contribute to the transformation of society. Mm -hmm. And um, what I see, what I see is that the people with the most power politically and economically, the biggest megaphones in our society are going in the opposite direction of what I had hoped for. That's mm -hmm. what I see. Mm -hmm. Well, so this brings me back to the whale. One of the experiences I had with um, a whale this week was through a video that Josh sent me. You know how last Sunday, uh, Dr. Winters asked us to do a bucket list. You know, what, what are the things you'd love to um, achieve before you die? And what, what that will contribute to growth, to, be, to living an, a meaningful life. And one of the things I wrote was whale watching or swimming with whales. And I have always wanted to do that. Um, and Josh sent me this video this week of a woman who was paddleboarding, probably off the, um, Northwest coast and a giant, I think humpback whale swam up to her paddleboard. So gently, she crouched down on the paddleboard, kind of holding herself in a little ball. She stayed in that position as the whale just gently moved around her, lifted one fin and lifted the other fin and kind of just played with her. The whale was so curious and the woman did not seem afraid. 
and this, this whale just kind of is like rocking and guiding her paddleboard. And the woman was in rhythm with this whale. It was a beautiful short video and probably also terrifying. A, a whale 10 times your size <laughs> comes to this little paddleboard where all you, the, all that stands between you is the paddleboard and your life vest, you know? Um, mm -hmm. But, but I also thought in that, that moment, that, video was such a picture of calm and playfulness and gentleness. If that woman had been approached by a great, great white shark, that experience would have been very different, full of terror, um, full of kind of get me out of here as quickly as I can. There, there probably would not have been a great sense of playfulness. And I just thought, you know, as a person, I want so badly to relate to the world and, and to any idea I have of God as the whale the gentle, playful spirit, but the world, God, reality is also the great white shark. Though these two are always in tension. There's a documentary that I saw recently about a woman who devoted her life to trying to change people's perceptions of sharks. Mm -hmm. And she related to them as they were greatly misunderstood and treated badly and that sort of thing. I don't remember the name of the documentary, but she's still alive and, and she played with sharks as a she'd enter the water unarmed and unafraid and played with them. It was it was amazing. I've seen I have been whale watching twice. And so it's, jealous. <laughs> it's it's really it's really Stunning mm -hmm. to see these creatures come up out of the water and whoa, they're big. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, you say that about the great white shark in that documentary, and it occurs to me maybe the transformation is in our approach, right? Um, the interior, the inner fear, right? We both are in awe of this idea of reality or of nature, and we're also terrified of it. And so, mm -hmm. you know, Edward Edinger talks about this. I think Jung is all about this, this integration of those two things and to just be with both the fear and trembling as well as the awe and the, and the joy, you know? And um, our perception of the experience has so much to do with the, the outcome of the experience. Well, in, in the interest of full disclosure, I want to tell you that I got this story about the whale from a book by a woman named Judy Canato, and the name of the book is called Field of Compassion, and she talks about morphogenic fields, and she talks about how our spiritual practices create energy fields that transform things. I think you would love the book. I need to read it. Um, my son said to me the other day, he said, mommy, did you know that humans glow? We just don't have the eyesight to see it. Whoa. That's so cool, you know? Where did um, he get that? He has a 5,000 facts books. He has like part one, part two, and part three. So I guess that's 15,000 facts that he has, um, but he, he, and he loves them and he's a really curious kid, but yeah, he, and we do, we, we, it has been said through many 
practices and spiritualities and naturopathic ways of approaching the body that we do have auras, right? We have energy fields. Everything is energy. So how can we be excluded from that? You know, and, um, you know, there's some people who can, who sort of, I don't want to make this sound, um, demeaning, but who sell themselves as they can see auras, right? How big or small our energy field is. Um, and I feel, I totally believe that and how we touch one another, how we engage with one another is that sort of overlap, that intersection of how our energy fields mm-hmm. make a third thing, you know, I've always thought, well, that third thing is my definition of love and God, the thing that happens in between. <laughs> so one of the one of the, the goals, hopes that I have for our teaching, basing our teachings on the on what we are learning about the Gospel of John, is that we can ourselves and we can facilitate other people bringing the kind of expanded life and living into the world that Shelby Spong talks about and that John Sanford talks about in their books. Um, mm-hmm. That's a goal for me, an wanting yeah. to do this. And, and uh, we, yeah. you and I, I just showed you before we got on today, um, one of three books on the Gospel of John written by... Um, Raymond Brown, each of these is like over 600 pages. The introduction to the Gospel of John is 600 pages. And then there are two books that total about 1,200 pages on the Gospel of John. So there is a vast amount of material out there. We are just scratching the surface. Yes. So how about you read those and I'll read the 230-page books. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, I, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, part of what I think we're, we're hoping to do is to radically reimagine, um, God. And you've said before that there is this hesitation to even use the word God. Um, and, and then we've played with like, well, what if we oversaturate God and just kind of insist that it's everything and everywhere all the time. And I don't know the right answer. I don't know what uh, what we ought to call this thing other than reality, other than life itself, other than energy. But I just came upon a one of these meditations by Meister Eckhart. There's the Book of Secrets that we both have, but there's also the Book of the Heart. Um, that is an What an is that one? The, the second one you mentioned? Meister Eckhart's Book of the Heart. Yeah, same translators and interpreters who did the Book of Secrets, um, John Sweeney and Mark Burroughs. And in this one reads, we must abandon God. One person said they had God, while another lamented God's absence. I say this, we must abandon the God we have in our thinking and believing for God's sake, so that we might come to know God as God truly is who never left us beyond knowing in a single oneness and pure union. I'm going to have to get that book. I didn't know about yeah. it until the right now. But I love that idea. We must abandon the beliefs and thinking we have about God for God's sake. 
Right. You can say that in so many ways. For God's sake, abandon your beliefs and <laughs> thoughts about, you know, the God you think you know. Well, I, 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 that's exactly what I think that um, the interpreters of the Gospel of John that I'm reading are saying is mm -hmm. that in order to get into a new position, you have to abandon the old. And Absolutely. that if growth is to occur, we can never think, well, now I've got it figured out. That's right. Yeah. The second we say that, it should be a little like slap in the face. <laughs> no, right. you don't. <laughs> no, you don't have it figured out. Yeah. 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 You have an understanding it, that's provisional. I was reading, and, and I'll say more about this on Sunday, um, rereading the chapter in Sanford on, on this piece where we are. And, you know, there's still so much reference in the, in the teachings of Jesus and in the words prescribed to Jesus of God, the father, right. Um, and we, we have learned that Jesus called God, Abba, daddy. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, in in that way, so, and we've, we've held on to that God, the father idea, right. Um, because we've been very attached to doctrine as a, a, a set of religious people, but what God, what God, what Jesus did in that time was radically transform how people understood God the Father, not as a vengeful, vindictive, violent God, but as a loving presence, as something that we can take that presence and carry into the world. And he couldn't, Sanford says he couldn't have talked about God any other way other than through the masculine, or he would have lost his audience. But he, he's kind of asking us to trust that Jesus had the implicit understanding of God as feminine also. God as yeah, both. I, I think the case can be made that, um, you know, though the, the Jesus, historical Jesus was a product of his time, just like we are, and lived in a cosmology, accepted cosmology, just like we do. Um, what what we will be talking about going forward when we talk about Mary or the mother of Jesus, when we talk about the woman at the well, when we talk about Mary and Martha, when we talk about the woman taken in adultery, when we talk about the other feminine encounters that Jesus had, the use of the word father, and Sanford makes this point, is not an emphasis on the patriarchal aspect or the masculine aspect but on the aspect of intimacy. Yes, 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 yes. And that's what Jim Finley says should be the result of the meditation uh, process is that we create a space where we can have an intimate experience with the sacred. Mm -hmm. so that's what we're hoping for. The, the, the challenge to me, and I, I don't know how many others fall into this category, is to also experience that the sacred is everywhere all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and that meditation practice, that presencing is a reminder. It's here too. It's here too. Mm -hmm. It's here too, <laughs> you know? Um, there is another piece that... Um, you know, kind of a reinterpretation of Adam and Eve that, uh, you know, we've been taught that Eve was created for Adam. But another twist on that is no, Adam needed Eve. 
Right. Um, and most of human history has been laid out by a dominator construct, at least the human history that we are privy to knowing about. Mm -hmm. And a dominator construct is a masculine principle. I'm not saying it's only male. Women can also be dominators. But the, the, the principle of domination is a masculine one. And so I think where it just feels sometimes overwhelming and also exciting is that we don't have an example of a partnership construct in, in, in our written human history. Right. So we're imagining it. We're trying to create it. We're trying to say, is this even possible given who we are in time and space? So in this book, Field of Compassion by Judy Canato, um, she has written other books that I have not read, putting together concepts of cosmology and religion. She's a Roman Catholic. She writes from that perspective, though she wants to uh, her writing to be accessible and open to everyone. And every chapter in this book ends with a prayer. And uh, she has a beautiful chapter on the power of meditation and what meditation can do. I would like to read you one of okay. her prayers. Incomprehensible holy mystery. So often I'm blind to your self-communication. So often I fail to see your love that is in plain view. Help me to see. Release me from my inattentional blindness. And allow me to truly see what is before me. May I release myself and others from judgment. And may I discover in the silence who I am in you and who you are in me. Enable me to grow into a maturity that embraces the world and participates co-creatively in the life of the world. May all creation benefit from my practice of meditation. Mm. I love the word inattentional blindness. Yes. It's not yeah, intended yeah. and not paying attention. I mean, it's, she made the word up. I love it. That's the creativity of language that we can sort of pull together these phrases that can describe right. what we need to say. But that's, a, I think, a beautiful place to stop. And I hope people will rewind <laughs> and listen again to that prayer. Okay. That's a good one. Thanks for sharing. I'll see you Sunday. All righty. Bye-bye.